Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for November 27th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of news, including the Lady Bird's record-breaking reviews, the future of Avatar sequels might be in doubt, the first Jumanji reviews have hit the web, a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League probably doesn't exist, why Quentin Tarantino doesn't like Netflix, Avengers 4 and 20 years of Marvel movies are planned, and Ryan Johnson's new Star Wars trilogy, uh, and uh, because we haven't had an episode in almost a week, uh, we're going to be stopping by the water cooler to talk about a bunch of you know movies and things we've done uh, during this Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I'm Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film writer Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And also joining us is Slash Film's other writer, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Guys, it was it was a good Thanksgiving holiday. I ate a lot. I'm not sure about you guys. Did, did you get, have, have yourself a feast this Thanksgiving? Uh, yes, I had a big family party with about 40 of my cousins on my dad's side, uh, and we all chipped in to make dinner. So I was tasked with making mashed potatoes, 15 pounds worth. That was really exciting. 40 people? Yeah. Um, well, about <laughs> 20 cousins and then some aunts and uncles uh, and significant others. But yeah, I have a big family. My dad has uh, seven siblings, all of whom are older than him. So I, I, I don't want to bore our audience who's here to talk about movies or listen to movie talk and TV talk. But how do you accommodate? Like how much? How do you seat forty people for a meal? Oh like well, this? we just we basically do like a big potluck and like it's kind of buffet style. And often it'd be at my uncle's house, which is pretty large. And sometimes the a lot of us would end up just sitting on the floor <laughs> around like the TV table or something. So it's, we, we make room. Uh, I did the opposite where it was literally just me and my wife and that was it. <laughs> we were, we were, we, we just did a low key Thanksgiving home to two of us and that was it. It was nice and quiet. Yeah, I had something in the middle. I had a Friendsgiving, had a bunch of friends over. We had a honey baked ham. We had some stuffing. I love my stuffing and Thanksgiving. And it, it, it was good. Um, I, I got to see a lot of good movies since the last time I talked to you guys. Um, because, you know, it's 
Oscar season's coming up. Uh, I'm in a critic circle, so they're you know sending me screeners. I'm getting early screening invites to these big movies. I got to see uh, Molly's Game, the directorial debut of uh, Aaron Sorkin. Um, have either of you seen this film yet? I have. I saw it at uh, TIFF. Jessica Chastain is great in it. Um, I like Sorkin's writing. I think he's a better writer than he is a director. Like the the direction wasn't as exciting as like the script. That's what I personally thought. Oh, I I, I agree. Um, I think Molly's Game. Uh, it's like a female Goodfellas set in the world of underground high stakes poker games. Uh, it is a. Uh, you know, it has his signature dialogue. Jessica Chastain is fantastic in that lead uh, title role. Um, I'm not sure I would trust Sorkin to do anything more action-y than people sitting around talking in rooms. And thankfully, I would say 95% of this film is that. But uh, when it is not that, it, it, you know, you can tell he's not good at that kind of stuff. Um it does feel a bit long at 140 minutes, and uh, I, I feel like you know this is a very good film, but I feel like there's a great film in there if he had cut, could have like found like you know 20 minutes to cut. But I'm not an editor, so what am I to say with that? Um, I also saw Lady Bird, which is in the running for one of my favorite films of the year. I, I loved it. You know, I didn't really know much about it going into it. Uh, obviously, I've seen. Uh, Greta's other work but this is like her solo directorial debut and uh you know it's hilarious it's smart it's honest it's emotional it's it's the kind of film that I went you know 10 years ago I'd go to Sundance seeking out it's you know a coming of age drama uh by the way it's it's kind of scary that we're now doing period films set in the early 2000s <laughs> that that makes me feel really old but uh but yeah um, it's, it's, you know, I think we're going to look back on this film as the debut of a brilliant new filmmaker. And I highly recommend anybody listening to this to go out and seek out this film, Lady Bird. Um, it's, it, it's incredible. Um, another, uh, thing I saw this past week is the Florida project, uh, which is Sean Baker's next movie. He was the guy that did Tangerine. Uh, Florida Project is uh, set in Florida outside of uh, Disney's Magic Kingdom. And it kind of is set, uh, you know, it's interesting. If, if you ever go on vacation to like Disney World or Disneyland, there's you see like these kind of like sad touristy kind of like hotels and areas outside of like the official ones. And you always wonder like, you know, who are the people that uh go to these places and not not just who the place people that go to these places but like when you go to like um you know you go to a summer retreat like like a vacation area like uh i'm, I'm trying to think of a, a good example here but like you, you know the, where the town booms during the summer and you're wondering like who are the people that live here during the rest of the year and i feel like this movie is kind of like about those people it's you know uh uh a fan, a lower class family uh, that is, you know, uh, it isn't a wonderful life. But the, you know, it, it's it, it's the great thing about this film is it's told from the point of view of the children, 
And uh, you get to see, you know, dramatic, serious things happening with the adults, but it's always from the eyes of the children. So it's maybe not always as dramatic as it should be. Um, and it's, it's just, I don't know. It's 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 also up there in my uh, favorite films of the year. It's um, has a very emotional gut punch. Uh, it's, I don't know. The, a lot of times with uh, children actors, it you know, you get really bad performances especially when you have independent film with children actors where they don't have the cream of the crop and this film has some wonderful performances from from the children actors and i'm sure we'll see a future with with them uh and uh lastly actually not lastly i also saw paul thomas anderson's the phantom thread but i am embargoed from just giving you any reaction or opinion on that movie, but I got to see a Q and a with him in the cast, uh, which the Q and a was wonderful. Um, uh, I can say that much. <laughs> uh, and, uh, lastly, I saw, uh, the season finale of Nathan for you Are either of you, uh, fans of the TV series, Nathan for you. I've never seen the show. What? I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it either. Actually. Oh my God. Uh, you guys got to get on this. Um, it's, it's quickly become one of my favorite TV shows. Uh, if you don't know what Nathan for you is, it's on Comedy Central. It follows Nathan Fielder, who uh, plays a guy who has graduated from a top business school. And he's it's kind of like a parody it, or it started off as a parody of those kind of reality shows where someone comes in to fix a business with crazy ideas and stuff like that. Um, and it's uh and that sounds like such a horrible pitch for a TV show. That sounds like something I wouldn't want to watch, but it's it's so hilarious. It's so wonderful. Uh, uh, season four just aired, and the final episode of season four, which I would not recommend for you guys to watch as your first episode because it has a lot of stuff that is kind of uh, built into it from previous episodes, if that makes sense, even though most episodes are very episodic. Um it's wonderful. It's almost like it's a feature length. It's almost like an independent uh, reminds me of like sideways or it, it, it feels like an independent film. It's 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 great. I loved it. Uh, I ran into Nathan at the Magic Castle on Friday and said nothing because I uh, was shy. Um, yeah. So that's what I've been doing. HT, what have you been doing? So in the spirit of thanksgiving in my very large family i went to see another very large family on the big screen which was coco uh i that was a really um touching movie to watch with a lot of my cousins just because it tapped into a lot of the sort of a lot of the vietnamese american culture that i kind of celebrate every day uh especially in terms of like ancestral worship i wrote a piece about this for slashfilm.com actually last week uh it kind of got hidden during the thanksgiving holiday festivities but i'm really proud of this piece and i think that coco is a just a great universal story um despite it being so embedded in like mexican culture and mexican mexican um communities. So this was a movie that I really appreciated seeing, seeing with my cousins and family and uh, which caused all of my cousins to cry at the end and promise to uh, pay more attention and to uh, try to preserve our culture a little more. So that was really nice. Um, and then I, after that, I uh, spent the weekend going to this true crime sort of exhibit at the Renwick Gallery in Washington, D.C., so this is an exhibit called 
Murder is Her Hobby, the Francis Glessner Lee and the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Deaths. So this is a really morbid and macabre sort of uh, exhibit that is that consists of several dollhouse dioramas made by this uh, woman in the 1940s, Frances Glessner Lee. And um, she meticulously crafted and replicated uh, several uh, crime scenes of either accidents or real murders. And um, they're extremely detailed. Like you can see when there is a, a gunshot wound, for example, she paints the blood splatter uh, perfectly um to a T. And uh, there's a lot of hangings, which is really sad, but a lot of, they take place like in the 40s and 50s, uh, which is when she made them. And uh, they've been used actually uh, at the at Harvard University uh, and for the forensics uh, department as a way of teaching students how to sort of spot clues and uh, handle crime scenes. So it's it's really fascinating. Like the exhibit is really cool because you they give you little flashlights and you can kind of go in and try to spot all the clues yourself or solve or try to guess whatever uh, case happened. Um, like, how how big are these dioramas? They're really small. They're um, uh, I don't know how exactly the di- the dimensions are, but they're um, like the dolls are about the size of like your hand, for example. And um, they're like basically the kind of dollhouse that you would find at a kid's in a kid's playroom, like r- really small and uh, really small pieces. So it's amazing, like how much detail it goes into it. So it's it's a really cool uh, exhibit and um, very kind of a kind of a little bit disheartening after you leave it because you're like wow there's a lot of just murder in the world and uh there was one that was very brutal with like a i think it was like a murder suicide of this family with a baby so that was that was a big turnaround from watching coco the day before so so is there like (laughs) blood all over the walls and stuff um a lot of them were just like hangings or like accidents that were unexplained. Like there was one yeah. that was a, a closed room case in which there was a woman who was found in her kitchen with all the windows closed, but like, and the doors locked, but she was just lying dead on the floor with that, without explanation. But there are some that was like, uh, had like blood splatters and blood puddles uh, painted onto the floor and stuff. And um, you can see it like on the wall and uh, randomly like on the pillows and everything. So yeah, definitely has every gory detail. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Chris, you haven't been in the multiplexes this weekend. You were in front of your TV. What, what were you watching? Right. So uh, I was catching up on some screeners from Netflix. I watched all of the new season of Black Mirror, which I can't say anything about because it's still embargoed. But I also watched uh, all Chris, of the... just wink at me if it was good. <laughs> I don't know why I said that because I can't see you. But okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> but um, uh, I also watched uh, The Crown season two, which I can talk about because that embargo is uh, lifted. And it was very good. I actually liked it better than the first season. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, The Crown is focused on the life of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And it's like a, you know, sort of like a behind the scenes drama of her life as the monarch. And it's good. Um, one of the reasons I like it so much is it's one of the few Netflix shows that's actually episodic in that it's not like a nine hour movie or as most Netflix shows feel like they're like nine hour movies stretched over nine episodes. This, this, this series is very much committed to just telling individual stories per episode, sort of like uh, how Mad Men uh, handled 
episode. So that's one of the things I liked about it. Only two things that you've been doing over the holiday? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I also I mean, have that, some screen. That, that is a lot of hours of television, but I. Uh, yeah, you... that's a, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, 15 hours. That's, that's a lot. So. <laughs> and you caught up on some screeners as well? Not yet. I, I've been getting a lot because I too am in a critics group, but I, have, I haven't had a chance to watch any of them yet. So hopefully this week I'll catch up with them. Yeah, I feel like it, it, it's interesting. I'm not sure if people know this, but like when you're in a critics group, you got to vote on year end awards in early December, which means that you have to see all these films that people usually see, you know, in December and January. You have to see it, you know, before, you know, much, much earlier. So it's it's a lot of pressure to uh, to to to, th- you know, see the films that you at least think are in the running for 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 like you know the best of the year awards um you can't see everything but uh yeah uh but moving on let's get in let's dive into the news uh ladybird a film i was just talking about has now become the best reviewed movie of all time on run tomatoes ht what do we know so ladybird has edged out toy story 2 for the movie with the most reviews to hold a 100 percent tomato meter score on rotten tomatoes so uh, Lady Bird has 169 fresh reviews and zero rotten reviews on the uh, review aggregator's website, uh, and while, whereas Toy Story 2 used to hold the record with 163 reviews. Uh, so this uh, puts Lady Bird in a club, elite club of only a few other films that have been able to achieve a 100% score with over 100 reviews. And that includes... Uh, 2016's Things to Come, which was, I think, a French film starring Isabelle Huppert. Uh, Man on Wire from 2008, which had 157 reviews. Um, and Toy Story 2, which had 163 reviews. Oh, and Things to Come had 128 reviews. So this is a really great um, uh, achievement for Lady Bird, which is the directorial debut of Greta Gerwig and is just a phenomenal movie. It's so... Uh, char- it's so... Uh, touching and personal and is a wonderful slice of life slash coming of age film uh, that I think adds to a nice adds a nice uh, female perspective to the sort of catalog of coming of age films we've had and I I like that it along with films like Edge of 17 and uh, Secret Diary of a Teenage Girl are adding more female films to this sort of often male oriented coming of age genre for sure, and uh, I'm obviously a big fan of this film. But we should we should note that uh, you know Rotten Tomatoes is a percentage of the people, the critics that liked the film versus not liked the film. So mm-hmm. uh, you know you you hear these films like Man on Wire, or Toy Story Two. Uh, these are films that critics kind of universally agree that they liked. It doesn't mean that you know th- those grouping of films were better than all other films. Yes, it yes. should be noted that the average critic rating for Lady Bird is 8.9 out of 10. So that doesn't mean every critic gave it a 10 out of 10, but it's just got 100% fresh or positive reviews. Yes, um, 8.4 out of 10 is still exceptional. Oh, 8.9. Or 8.9 out of 10 is is exceptional. And uh, yes, like I said before, go see it. Uh, you know, if, if, if it's playing anywhere within our drive of you, you, you should make that drive. Um, 
you know, use MoviePass if you have to. <laughs> uh, we we uh, also in the news, James Cameron's out promoting a bunch of stuff, and he has uh, done some interviews. One of which he revealed the details of Kate Winslet's character and admitted that Avatar four and five are not actually guaranteed movies that are going to happen. Uh, this is surprising. So, Chris, what do we know? Right. So in their interview, uh, James Cameron reveals that Kate Winslet is playing uh, a, a member of the sea people, he calls her. They're, they're doing a bunch of motion capture footage shot actually underwater. And apparently she's playing, uh, I guess, the leader of the, the people who live under the water on Pandora, the, the planet where Avatar is set. And then he also goes on to say, interestingly enough, that while Avatar 2 and 3 are definitely happening and they're they're being shot back to back right now, uh, Avatar 4 and 5 are not a, a done deal. Basically what he says is, if no one goes to see Avatar 2 and 3, there's not going to be a 4 and 5, which is pretty much like common sense. That's how you know movies work. But it kind of seems like that's unlikely to happen. It, it seems like if they're going to commit to these movies that two and three will make enough money to make four and five. Yeah. I think it's just surprising because before he has said that they were going to shoot all five film or four films, four films, yeah, four, four, four films, films. Uh, uh, at the same time. And now it seems that he's only doing that with the, uh, what two and three. Two and, yeah. Yeah. Originally he did say that instead of shooting them, not even back to back, it's literally going to be one huge production, but apparently he only meant, for two and three, not four and five. Yeah. For the past, past couple of months, he's been uh, saying that he's just shooting two and three uh, back to back, whereas four and five will be kept on the back burner. Uh, but yeah, this is news that it will, it's kind the fate of four and five are kind of up in the air. So we, it's been reported that the production budget for these sequels is $1 billion. So uh, that is what one billion divided by four films. So that's two hundred fifty thousand or two hundred fifty million each film, right? Am I, that's mm-hmm. my math correct. Uh, so what I'm wondering is if if they're making these next two films for five hundred billion or five hundred million dollars, um, how badly would they have to do for four and five not to happen? Um. I, I guess Justice League numbers. Yeah, Justice League numbers, and that is what like it's probably going to end up six hundred, seven hundred million, something like that. Um, but what's the chances that Avatar two and three are going to do that badly? I mean, the first one did what billions of dollars. I guess it it kind of depends on how Avatar two does. Really, I feel like if Avatar two ends up being not good i guess i could see the buzz sort of dying off and people not bothering to see three but yeah, but uh, who let, knows let, let's say that avatar 2 does half the amount of money that avatar 1 did then it would do 1.5 billion dollars you know and avatar 3 does half of that it will do what what is that 700 or 800 million dollars or something like that I can't even see like so if they if if they have each other, I it still seems to me that Avatar four and five are still going to happen. But I don't know. Uh, 
let's move on from james cameron to jumanji this is a film i saw a few weeks ago the embargo has now broken and people are are sharing their thoughts uh some select press are sharing their thoughts of uh, their early uh social media thoughts on this film i don't think there's actually reviews that are up yet um i'll just share my thoughts before we get to ht rounding up what other people have said but um you know i was not expecting to like this film uh i I was kind of shocked that they were showing it to me so early so i you know i went to the screening um not expecting much and i i want to say that first of all i'm not a huge fan of the original jumanji you know it holds uh, a place in my heart but it's not like a great film uh this film is a lot of fun uh, it's silly, it's cheesy, but it's fun. And it's, uh, I think, uh, what it does for the concept of a video game movie. And I know this isn't based on a video game. The original Jumanji is based on a non-existing board game. Uh, but I think the way that this does things with people playing characters inside a video game and the body swapping thing, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. And I, I, I think this movie is going to uh, kill with the family crowd. HG, what, what did other people think? I haven't even looked at the, the responses from other people. Did people like it? Yeah, you share the with the other reactions a general sense of pleasant surprise. Uh, everyone, most people really liked it. They say it's a fun, funny film, a good family-friendly outing, and they praise uh, Jack Black and uh, Dwayne Johnson particularly for the uh, body swap comedy that they engage in. Um, and they say that it's not too steeped in nostalgia, which I think was the big fear because uh, Jumanji is so heavily um, associated with Robin Williams' performance. And uh, that's a huge burden because of Robin Williams' passing. But they make a slight nod to it, I'm assuming. and uh, But it's more of an original take, an original twist on the story, uh, which is about it being a video game and a body swap comedy and all these um, young kids who are stuck in adult bodies. And um, yeah, that's the general, just a good uh, comedy adventure film. I'm wondering what people are going to think of it that love Jumanji, because I'm not sure that this is a, I mean, it is a Jumanji movie, but it's, it uh, it really seems like the the screenwriters involved here probably came up with the idea of like, what would it be like if these you know, the breakfast club kids were sucked into a video game together. And, uh, I know that sounds like such like, you know, a nonsense concept, but it, it's done in such a fun and clever way uh, at times. And, you know, the body swap stuff is so good. Um, so I'm, it's not going to blow people away. I'm not saying that, but I, I would honestly put it up there, uh, with the best video game movies of all time, which I would, you know, uh, movies, uh, on the line of like, King of Kong, Scott Pilgrim, uh, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, and this film, all of which are not video game adaptations because all video – I would say it's better than any video game adaptation. <laughs> but I, I would say it's, uh, you know, uh, with those other films, it's, uh, you know, those other films might be, uh, you know, are above this. But this film is, is a very good film. It's a very enjoyable film. I have a question for you, Peter. Yeah. Um, the arc that Jack Black's character has is uh, just like of the typical sort of hot chick in like an overweight man's body. And it's something that's kind of a tired concept that we've seen before with like the hot chick. Um, is this, is, is it done well and, and like cleverly in, uh, uh Jumanji? I'm not going to say it's done cleverly. Um, but it is also, it's not just a hot chick in a fat guy's body. It's, 
you know, uh, you know, millennial selfie taking hot girl. Oh no, it's it, it's it, it's playing on a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm th- this this isn't a movie that you're gonna want to go do th- it, for something very smart and clever. You know, <laughs> this is this is a broad kind of comedy, but I I was pleasantly surprised throughout at uh, things that I was doing. And uh, even like how it play, you know, especially how it plays with video games, I think uh, is, is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm 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 wondering what your thoughts will be on on that whole thing. Um, I'm it's it's not particularly clever, but it's 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 funny. Okay. Yeah. Um, moving on. Uh, Justice League. We've talked about Justice League <laughs> so much. People are probably pit, uh, like angry that we're still talking about Justice League. But, uh, you know, fans are demanding that Warner Brothers release a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. Uh, You know, on Reddit, a VFX artist who supposedly worked on the film, which we have not confirmed, uh, says that, uh, of course, there is an assembly cut Zack had going before he left. But that was nine months ago. He himself has not touched or interfered on or been part of the process since March. There is no Zack Snyder cut. Uh. People like this, like this guy are the worst perpetrating. Okay, I'm not going to get onto everything he says here, but um, while we can't confirm that there is no Zack Snyder shot, it, it kind of gels with everything we know about the movie making process. You know, he was he, you know, kind of left this project uh, before you know they got to the point where they could finish it, and you know, there's a reported you know 50, 60, 70 minutes of footage were, that were cut. The VFX did not get to a point where they finished it. Like they're not, they're not going to release a unfinished cut. If you've ever watched, um, you know, deleted scenes for a visual effects heavy movie, you you know how bad that stuff looks without the VFX done. And I, they were so far away from being done that I don't think there is a cut here. But uh, Ben Pearson has a full article on slashfilm.com detailing a bunch of uh, scenes that were cut from the film, including a end credit scene that they've apparently had an idea for a post credit scene that had multiple green lanterns uh, appearing. So you can, um, you can go to the site and I'll link that in the show notes. You can read about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I just don't think, I think the likelihood of us seeing a Zack Snyder cut of justice league it's just as much as us seeing a original cut of Rogue One uh, by the original uh, director there. Uh, so I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Do you, do you guys have any opinion on um, if we will ever see the Zack Snyder cut? I don't think so. Um, and I yeah. think that fans just stop trying to co-opt charity language to uh, get it because of that whole movement or petition, whatever, to get the Justice League Zack Snyder cut and support uh, Justice League box, o- box office, uh, for example. But, you know, yeah, there, I, I think... There's people <laughs> encouraging people to go see Justice League six times in the theater so that that it, Warner Brothers will make so much money that they'll release the cut. It, it's, it seems so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's move on from, from that to Quentin Tarantino, something more serious. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is out doing some press. Uh, he talked a little bit about why he doesn't like Netflix. It seems to me like he doesn't know what Netflix is. Chris, you wrote this up for the site. What did Quentin Tarantino say? Yeah. So, uh, Quentin Tarantino in the past has 
said pretty much similar things regarding Netflix. And in this this quote, he he confesses that he's not even on Netflix. So like you said, Peter, I don't think he actually understands really what Netflix is. And he also even talks about how he still uses VHS tapes and he'll tape stuff off TV, which is very, very old school. Um, basically, what he goes into is he's saying there was, uh, he just doesn't really get it. And he prefers video because back in the day, you know, video stores uh, gave you something tangible where you would go into a video store and you would actually talk to the clerk and the clerk would recommend something for you and you had to commit to a movie basically. And his criticism with Netflix seems to be it's too random. You don't really commit to anything. You don't really care what you're watching. Uh, That's pretty much what it boils down to is what he's saying. And I obviously don't (laughs) agree with him, but you know, that's, that's his stance. Now Tarantino himself was a video store clerk uh, in LA and that's how he got his start. Um, you know, when when video when Blockbuster was going away, it was kind of uh, you know a lot of people talked about kind of the death of of that kind of recommendate movie recommendations. And I know when I was a kid, you know, I'd go into this local video store in my old hometown called Video Paradise, and you know, I would you know ask the clerk behind the counter, which was the guy that owned the store, as this old man, and you know he'd recommend all these like. I want to say obscure movies. They probably aren't obscure <laughs> nowadays, but for me, then they were obs- more obscure than what I would normally watch, and it was a kind of a great process. Do you guys uh, think that you know now that that is gone, now that we are faced with a screen of tiles of movies and TV shows on that Netflix app, and there's no recommendation service? Like, are are are, are we getting an inferior experience? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I do think, you know, Netflix, they don't have the best selection. You know, it it can't compare to, you know, those video store days where a good video store would have quote unquote everything. Whereas Netflix, they're they're very even though they have a lot of titles, they're very limited in what they can offer. I feel like the best uh, answer to this problem is to belong to more services than netflix you know i know that's not ideal for everyone but you know i i belong to like you know filmstruck which has a great selection of obscure titles that netflix will never have so i feel like if you're willing to commit to more than one service you can get something close to that video store experience i I think you're right with selection but chris when i look at filmstruck I, i get um I guess the word is overwhelmed because there's so many movies on there that I have no, I've never heard of. Where right. do I, where do I even start? Like, how do you know where to, what to pick on there? I would recommend you read Chris Evangelista's streaming column on slashfilm.com. <laughs> it, appears, it appears every other week on Thursdays. So look out for that where I recommend films. But uh, I know, I, I know what you're saying where it is, it can be overwhelming. So, I guess that element of what Tarantino is saying where, you know, that that physical connection where you had like a clerk who could recommend stuff that is gone. But, you know, you have the next best thing. You have me recommending stuff on <laughs> on SlashFilm.com. H.T., you probably grew up in a uh, day where, you know, video ga- uh, video stores were probably in their dying grasp uh, as you were growing up as a teenager, I'm, I'm assuming. Right. Uh, so w- what are your thoughts on on? Uh, how we're going to be finding re- movie recommendations in the future. Did you ever go to a video, a video store clerk for movie recommendations? 
First of all, I reject that assertion, but I also didn't have a sort of small town or like local movie store. I just had a blockbuster nearby. So there wasn't any of that um, personal intimacy. Uh, Sometimes the clerks would have a recommendation or two, but Blockbuster was incredibly limited compared to uh, more local chains, um, which I was never familiar with because I'm young. I'm a millennial. But, but, but Blockbuster uh, went out of business when you were like 10 years old. No. I know. I'm just There kidding. was a Blockbuster near me and I tried to go for a job there when I was in high school, but they didn't take people who were under 18. And by the time I was 18, it had closed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what um, do you think the future of rec- movie recommendations is? Mm, yeah, I guess it's like Chris said, it's through uh, what we search for in uh, recommendations online, through online articles, through our sort of um, the uh, the sort of formula that Netflix has when you uh, for suggestions, whenever you watch something that says this is what you should watch next, um, which is limited. But there is a just a giant plethora of uh, options on the World Wide Web as they say. So I guess like it's both more limited and more, um, more, there are more things available just because there's so many options. Sometimes it feels more limiting. And Vanity Fair has a whole cover story on the next two Avengers films. HT, you kind of wrote this up and summarized it for the site. Uh, what, what did we learn from this whole thing? So in addition to giving us a sort of sneak peek at the costumes of all the characters in Avengers Infinity Infinity War, uh, Kevin Feige and uh, Bob Iger gave us a hint at what the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe would look like post-Avengers 4. So Avengers 4 is supposed to be this sort of game-changing movie. Uh, We're not sure about the plot details of it or how many characters will come out alive after it, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe will be completely changed after uh, the events of this film. And uh, Kevin Feige described Avengers 4 as sort of the finale for the first period of the MCU, um, which is which is comprised, I think, of three phases now. So uh, this is sort of a midway point, too, because Feige also said, uh, now we're 22 movies in, and after Avengers 4, there's another 20 movies on the docket um, that we don't really have a clue of what they are because uh, Marvel has up until now been very meticulous and very detailed with what movies are on their slate. But post-Avengers 4, we're not really sure outside of the sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So it's a big, wide mystery there, and it's quite exciting because uh, this is a whole new chapter for the MCU that we don't really know where what it will look like. Um, it will probably be, be more cosmic uh, based on some of the news we've seen about Guardians of the Galaxy being a huge influence on the new uh, phase, but... Um, yeah, this will be um, this is big news for Marvel Studios. It's a pivotal uh, turning point for the cinematic universe as we know it. Yeah, and it, it should be mentioned that Ben Pearson ha- should have an article on the site by the time you read this, kind of uh, giving a uh, a preview of what what that those twenty films could be. Some educated guesses. Um, it should be mentioned. Well, twenty films seems like a lot. Uh, Marvel is now gearing up to do three films a year. So if they continue at that three films a year, uh, 20 films is six years, which really isn't that long of a time or seven years, seven years. 
Yeah, seven years. <laughs> My math's off. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I guess that is a long time in, in, in movie the movie world. But, like, you know, that's the same amount of times that it takes them to do, you know, three Star Wars Skywalker Saga episodes. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the bottom line here is we're going to get a lot of Marvel movies coming up. Uh, but uh, go read Ben's article and, and get a sneak peek into what those could be. Uh, but lastly, let's let's get into our final news item, and that is about Ryan Johnson. He is finally giving some quotes about uh, his new Star Wars trilogy that was announced. Uh, it doesn't reveal much, but Chris, what did he say? Right. So uh, a little while back, it was announced that Ryan Johnson will be making a new Star Wars trilogy outside of the, the ongoing Skywalker saga. And what he said in the new interview was, uh, I'm just in the very beginning of starting to come up with what the new trilogy is going to be. What makes me so excited about it is the idea of doing a new story on the big canvas of three movies in this world. There's just so much potential and I can't wait to jump into it. So basically what he's saying is what excites him the most about this project is opening up the the Star Wars galaxy going beyond you know the 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 universe we've seen so far in pretty much all the films now n- neither of you were on that episode that we recorded when this news broke we did an emergency podcast uh we had Amy from uh Nerdist on uh we uh the uh what I'm wondering is because you guys haven't talked about this and we were so excited when this news broke to talk about it and to geek out about this, that it didn't occur to me at the, that point that Ryan Johnson signing on for a new star Wars trilogy is great because I love Ryan Johnson and I love star Wars, but it also means that we're probably not going to get a non Ryan Johnson. So, I mean, a, a Ryan Johnson, non star Wars movie, anytime in the next six or seven, eight years. If he's directing them, which we don't know, we know he's going to direct the first one and he's going to write the others or that's what's been announced. But let's assume he's directing. Like th- That means he- we're not going to get another Looper. We're not going to get another Brick. We're not going to get another Brothers Bloom for, you know, uh, until we, we, we get that next uh, Marvel's Infinity, you know, whatever that is at the end of the next 20 Marvel films, that'll be the next time we see a Ryan Johnson film that is not Star Wars. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought of that actually either. And that that does bum me out a little because I I would love to see, uh, I mean, I would love to see Ryan Johnson do something else. I mean, I am excited for The Last Jedi. I am excited to see what he does with this trilogy, but I'd also would love for him to make, you know, another brick or a movie like that. That's not set in the star Wars universe, but I, I guess it really all depends on what he's going to do with that new trilogy. If he does direct all three of them, then yeah, it's going to be a while, but if he's only directing the first, I mean, there's a good chance we'll, we'll see another film of his before then. Plus he could always make something before, the first entry in that trilogy comes out, you know, if, if he wants to. So that's, that's a good point too. Yeah. It, um, that does sort of put a, a bummer on the, on things, but, uh, I do hope, and I hope that he doesn't, um, have a creative burnout while he's working on the star Wars trilogy, because a lot of these sort of, uh, visionary directors use, a uh, take a year off or two to work on their own personal projects and then go back to the blockbuster tentpoles to uh, get some 
go back into it. And um, yeah, I, I hope uh, I want to see Brick again or another Brick. I, this was one of my favorite movies when it came out. So I I like I like Ryan Johnson's work, and I hope that this won't be the last we'll see of his uh, independent films before he emerges from Star Wars. It's just a weird dichotomy because it's like, you know, we want to, you know, if you're a fan of Star Wars, you want to see good Star Wars movies from people that you, you know, trust and love. But it also means that those people that you trust and love will not be able to do original, exciting, interesting work outside of the Star Wars movie. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, it, it just got me thinking. Um, if anybody has any thoughts on that, please send them to our email at peter at slash film.com. Uh, if you have any questions for our mailbag, send them to peter at slash film.com as well with their name in general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. Uh, HD, where can we find more of your work online? You can find me at slash film.com. I'm at htranbui on Twitter and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast on iTunes. I'm also at slash film.com and I'm on Twitter at cevangelista413. You can find me at slash film. You can find me at slash film on Twitter. Uh, you can find this podcast published almost every weekday on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. We are back after a hiatus of that Thanksgiving holiday season, so there should be an episode every day this week if we can help it. And, uh, you know, please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Help spread the word. That helps us out quite a bit. Uh, and we will see you tomorrow.